Congratulations! You're listening to a Radio 191 FM podcast. It's history time. Come on, tell your friends. We'll visit New Zealand's ancient lands with Jamie the host and Dr. Valetta Gillibit the historian. Our fun will never end because it's history time. It's history time here on Radio 191 FM and as always I'm joined by Dr. Violetta Gillibert from the History Department here at the University of Otago and today we have a special guest, Dr. Lockie Patterson from Te Tumu, the School of Māori Pacific and Indigenous Studies, uh, Atamarie. Kia ora. Kia ora. How are we today? Very well, thanks Jamie. Yes. Yeah. Well, Kairo atu. Very good to have you both here. Uh, it's the Wiki o Te Reo Māori, so this week we'll be looking at the history of Te Reo through colonial and post-colonial Aotearoa. I guess we'll kick off with the fact that Te Reo, it, it's an Eastern Polynesian language, isn't it? Um, Lucky, you know a little bit about the origins. Yes, it's an Austronesian language, so Austronesian language before European missionaries, uh, explorers were going around the world was the largest spread language in Mm -hmm. the world going from Madagascar uh, Taiwan Hawaii out to East Island and then down to New Zealand Wow! so the the, um, Eastern Polynesian language uh, one part of that larger grouping and within the Eastern Polynesian there's quite a few languages as well right oh yes Um, there's it goes from Hawaii to the north, uh, south to New Zealand, then over to East Island, and then you've got various French Polynesian, Cook mm-hmm. Island languages, those sorts of languages. Amazing. Now, English is obviously overtly dominant in uh, use today, uh, but in the late 18th and first half of the 19th century, Treo was the common way of communicating. If you were European and wished to trade uh, and whatnot, you had to learn Treo, right? Yes. Um, prior to 18... Well, in, in 1840, there were about 2,000 um, Pākehā mm. total wow. in, in New Zealand. So not many. No. Um, so missionaries, traders had to learn Te Reo Māori in order to survive, in order to do their business. Um, it changed after 1840 because what tended to happen then were there were big clumps of... Um, of settlers in certain areas. So what tended to happen there was that Māori who wanted to trade with them uh, would learn enough English in order to be able to trade. Um, But it all really depended on where you were, who you were, um, as to how that played out. Interesting. Um, And we're doing a piece on marriages, uh, and there were a lot of early marriages between the traders and Māori women, and they would have children. Yes, certainly. uh, Bilingual children. Yes. Who grew up in bilingual households. Yeah. Absolutely. And um, so that was a a factor as well in uh, kind of these two languages meeting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they really um, took the language, um, put them them together, and, and households around the country were bilingual, and that helped... Uh, I guess the other Europeans that come along to, to learn the language as well, because their yeah, children yeah. or their households, or when these children grew up, they would intermingle with. Intermingle, yeah, to yeah. an extent. Again, um, it depended uh, what extent, uh, according to place and the like. Um, and these bilingual households were in a minority, um, especially as settlement kicked off. Mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. Um, but you know, absolutely, they're in present. Yeah. 
Of course, before European colonisation, Māori didn't have a written language. They did, however, um, you know, you told, told stories um, through weaving, carving, knots and the like, but they didn't have a written language. And so the Europeans were like, well, I don't know what they thought, but they had to sort this out, so something was done about it. <laughs> something was, yes. Um, <laughs> initially, um, it was, uh, well, the, the missionaries and um, the, the mission that kind of kicked off this uh, linguistic contact, I suppose. Um, obviously, the missionaries wanted to come in and convince Māori of the value of Christianity, the yep. Christian God, and uh, Christian ways of living. So, um, in the interest of doing that, uh, missionaries set about learning Māori. Yeah. And the first person to actually do this was Thomas Kendall, who arrived in the Bay of Islands in 1814. Uh, yeah. So, rather early. Um, and he was uh, among the first to create a written document. Um, he attempted to put together a few dictionaries or grammars, mm -hmm. collaborated with uh, the Rangatira Hongiheka, Nakui, and um, even took him and Ruatara, another Rangatira, over to England to meet the king and collaborate with a linguist from Cambridge. Yeah, that's right. That was Samuel Lee, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And um, But there had been earlier attempts, but this was the first one that kind of stuck, was it? Well... So the problem was, how do you write it down? Yeah. Particularly when you speak English and you ex you you know how to write English down, so you hear Māori and you sort of like, oh, well, I'll write it down like I understand English. Mm. So the first book was actually 1815, which Kendall produced, and if you look at it, you can see that it, it, he's been writing it down as if he's writing with English vowels. And it wasn't until he met with Samuel Lee that they were able to develop a, a, a much more workable orthography mm -hmm. for the language so in 1820. Um, so that was, was the first attempt and then we got to a second attempt and then uh, early dictionaries from the likes of William Williams in 1844 he wrote the first dictionary didn't he? Yes well they were from missionary, um, there was a missionary family um, so there was Henry Williams who was involved in the uh, translation of the treaty uh, William Williams was his brother, mm -hmm. and he collected words, created this dictionary, um, but based on the orthography that Kendall and Lee had developed. So it was still in transition. It wasn't until the um, mid-1840s uh, that it actually really looked exactly or very similar to how it looks today. Um, just a little couple of years earlier than that, there was the first Māori language newspaper. Who wrote that? Okay, that was put out by the um, Protector of Aborigines, which was a government position, supposedly for someone who looked after Māori interests. Yeah. Um, so he, yeah, he, his office put it out from 1842 to about 1849, I think. <laughs> when, when Governor Gray got rid of them. Um, that um, newspaper um, w was shut down, but then more government newspapers uh, were produced after that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, I mean, w we've got a pretty good understanding, like, like you said, in 1844 there was the first dictionary, and it's almost to what we have it as it is today. So there was a kind of good understanding of Māori uh, writing at the time. So if we look at the, the treaty in 1840, uh, and the two different treaties, the Māori and the Pākehā Treaty, how did they get it so wrong? Um, well, some historians 
might argue that they didn't actually get it wrong. It's our interpretations of what they meant today which are wrong. But if you're thinking of um, why uh, a word like um, or a phrase like tinorangatiratanga is used in the Māori version, one of the arguments is that Māori were very concerned that their land was going to be taken away. So the argument is that the missionaries um, stood up and, and said, look, you're still going to be, you have your chiefly um, rights over the, over these lands. So it was really to reassure Māori. That's one um, argument. Another argument is that uh, it was done deliberately to um, <laughs> to fool Māori. Yeah. Um, yeah, it really depends on, on how you want to interpret it. How important was early um, the written tarao to both Māori and to Europeans? Well, the thing is that literacy um, really kicked off in the 18, early 1840s. So the, the big sort of um, thing that Māori read were, were scriptural things. So the Bible is really, really important during yep. this, the, or the New Testament during this period. So Māori are really into reading. They're really also into writing letters. So a huge amount of letters written between Māori to missionaries, to the government. And then the government, or native department, was also writing letters back to them in Māori. Um, then there's the newspapers. So the written Māori uh, was really, really important to Māori during this period. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know, but it seems like I mean, it was kind of it was important to Europeans as well. So why did we get to 1847 with the education ordinance? Oh, yes. Um, that ordinance essentially said that um, for missionaries who were getting money from the government to educate Māori, they were going to be getting this money, then they should be teaching English. Mm-hmm. And for the, for the missionaries, their greatest goal was actually to create uh, good Christians. Yeah. So they weren't overly effective. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> it wasn't really their biggest priority. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that's why in 1867 the the government um, passed the the Native Schools Act, essentially to create have to create their own um, schools and to take that money away from the missionaries. Oh, interesting, interesting. Did I mean? Did they want to devalue Tereo, the, the government? I mean, what was the government's goal? With the government's argument was always to Māori that you should learn English. Yeah. Like we can't translate everything that's in English into Māori. So if you want access to this knowledge, you need to be able to speak English or to to read English. So um, if you want to um, be part of this new, exciting colonial um, progress, uh, you need to be able to speak English. So it always was part of it. But, of course, Māori were living in villages. Mm. They didn't necessarily want to speak English to each other. They still spoke Māori. There were a lot of people uh, right through the the um, 19th century uh, who didn't really speak English. Mm-hmm. A lot of people did, a lot of Māori did, but there were a lot also who didn't. So it was important for the government to continue using Te Reo Māori if they wanted to actually communicate with Māori as a whole. Yeah, and eventually that changes a little bit down the, down the track. 
um, there were there were more policies in the early 1800s as well, um, like the policy to ensure that if if you went to school and you spoke Te Reo when you got to school, by the time you left school you had to speak English right as your first language. Yes. Can I just give you an example, a modern day example? Uh, a friend of mine was doing linguistic research in um, an island in Vanuatu, and children would go off to school and there'd be have their education in English or in French. Yeah. They go back to their village, and within a very short amount of time, they're speaking their indigenous language and they forget English and Māori. Mm. Uh, sorry, English and French. Yes. So it really depends on what the interactions are. Mm-hmm. If Māori are trading, if Māori are communicating or needing to communicate in English, then they would maintain it. But for an awful lot of people, they didn't need to. Mm-hmm. All right, there is the first half of my chat with Dr. Valetta Gilbert and Dr. Lockie Patterson about the colonial and post-colonial history of te reo Māori in Aotearoa, of course. Um, <clears throat> second half, coming for you at Hapas 9 this morning. It's history time. Come on, tell your friends. We'll visit New Zealand's ancient lands with Jamie the host and Dr Valetta Gillibut the historian. Our fun will never end because it's history time. Right, it's time for part two of our look into the history of Te Reo Māori in Aotearoa. Um, we're looking, we've gone up to the 1930s now, so we're looking from the 1930s forward. So here's myself, Dr. Valetta Gilbert, and Dr. Lockie, um, oh God, Patterson from the, from Te Tumu, the School of Māori Pacific and Indigenous Studies. So in the beginning of the 20th century, Te Reo was still a quite the dominant language in Māori society. But then there was a shift in the 1930s, wasn't there? Yeah, uh, or at least one uh, very big shift which began in the 1930s, and that was um, the start of urban migration. Uh, if we can imagine the Depression and how it might have impacted uh, already very impoverished communities who were recovering from some uh, very serious uh, shifts in all matters of life, um, yeah. people got um, rather fed up with it, uh, and a lot of uh, young folk and a lot of uh, women, especially single women, as I understand it, um, were made early moves into the city and were soon joined by others. Yeah. So I mean, and like you were just saying before, like if you go back to your village, you quickly forget French and English. Now a lot more Maori are becoming urbanised, living in the cities, and not going back home. Yep. So that's where you start to lose the language, right? Definitely. Um, I've got a PhD student, um, Megan Portiki, who's looking at um, how the what she calls the death of the language happened at Otako, just out on the Otago Peninsula. Mm-hmm. So you can see by the early 20th century there, it was effectively dead. Mm. It, you know, you only had a few old people who, who spoke it. If you look at a place like Ruatoki in the Bay of Plenty, you know, they've never lost it. Mm-hmm. So it really depends on where you are and, um, you know, whether parents want their children to learn English, um, whether whether they speak it in the home. So if it's spoken in the home, even if, if they were learning English in the schools, 
it tended to be transmitted. It, ten it, it tended to be um, continued. It's where uh, you have the, the teaching of English in the schools and parents going, oh, I better just speak English to them because, you know, Māori's not going to be any use to them. Mm -hmm. The combination of those two things. And then, as um, Violetta was saying, you have urbanisation just coming in on top of that mm. um, and taking people away from those home areas. All of those things uh, had an impact on, on Māori uh, progressively losing that language. Yeah. Uh, the Māori start to see that, you know, if you wanted to succeed in life, if you wanted to get a job, a good position, you know, something out, out of living, that English was the language that you had to speak. Well, I'd, I'd say yes. Um, to be accepted into, well, uh, at least in the Pākehā working context, um, a lot of uh, memoirs that I've read uh, describing the kind of urban migration and uh, Māori experiences in the 1940s and the 50s, you couldn't even be hired for a job in some instances if you had a Māori name. Yeah. And so uh, some uh, perhaps more fortunate, lighter complexioned folks would actually claim that they were Spanish or European um, rather than admitting Māori ancestry. Um, so the language um, or language use was uh, definitely a part of that discrimination people faced. When we get to the 1950s and the language is well in decline, but then you start getting some rumblings at um, tertiary education institutions. Name firstly Auckland University College in 1952. They were the first to offer Māori studies. Yes, and um, Sir Apadana Ngata um, was also um, an advocate for Te Reo Māori prior to that to mm -hmm. be taught at, in universities. So there was definitely, uh, there were people sort of advocating for this uh, well before it actually <laughs> yeah, actually started. Um, yes, but that Auckland was definitely the first place that Te Reo Māori was being taught. So obviously, I mean, that's only been 20 years since the 1930s, and I know things began before the 1930s, but you're already seeing that people like who you mentioned were seeing a need for this already. Like it had been, you know, had started to decline that much within the space of a generation. Yes, I would say really, you know, you have people who speak English mm -hmm. who come to this university and study English. Yeah. So they're not, they're not learning the language. They're learning about literature. They're learning about all sorts of aspects of the English language. And I think for people like Nutter, when, you know, he was arguing for these things in, in the 1930s, was that it was really about people coming and looking at motiatia, mm -hmm. um, you know, really investigating that language at high level. It wasn't teaching the language yeah. as a second language. Um, but that is what um, a lot of universities became purely because people wanted to learn and a lot of people didn't have the language. So you really have to, to be able to do that sort of higher level work, you need to have <laughs> done three or four years of learning of language yeah, first. Yeah. Started going through to other universities, I guess one of the most prominent was Victoria, the Te Reo Māori Society. And Otago, it took a while. It certainly did. There was a guy called Ray Harlow, and he started, oh, it would, must be in the 80s, just teaching the language uh, as part of anthropology, oh. Oh. So like one, wow. pa one paper. Yeah. Um, at, but it wasn't until um, Godfrey uh, Pohatu came. Um, I don't have the date in front of me, um, <laughs> but a a and established the um, Māori Studies Department, 
that um, you know we, we had sort of a, 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 a properly coordinated um, sort of Māori language learning. Um, so we celebrate Te Wiki Otereo Māori now, but prior to 1972 there was nothing like that. So what happened in 1972? Uh, well, I suppose we could talk about the social climate more broadly. Um, yeah. We'd just seen uh, in the decade previous a uh, huge civil rights activity in North America mm-hmm. um, and around the world, really. Um, in settler colonial societies, there was a lot of attention paid to um, the losses and the injustices and um, the need for kind of reparation and recovery that uh, still persisted and that still persists today, mind you. Indeed. Um, So all of this attention kind of focused into some uh, institutional responses by the 70s, um, which, of course, you know, that energy was still quite strong, I suppose. One thing from that particular period, there was a guy um, called Dr. Richard Benson, Benton, who did a a giant survey of almost a 1,000 Māori homes in the North Island looking at um, what languages people spoke and what he found was that um, it was mainly older people who were speaking the language mm-hmm. and the transmission had stopped. Yeah. Um, so young people weren't learning, weren't speaking the language. And this really freaked a lot of people out that, hey, you know, we are going to lose this language when all of these old people died, yeah. which is really um, what motivated Māori to set up the, um, the kohanga reo yeah. to, to start with and then the kūrakaupapa. Yes, that's right, that's right. So from the 1972 petition that was presented to Parliament, I think it was signed by about 3,000 people, um, it came the establishment in the same year of the Māori Language Day, and in 1975 that was extended into what we know as today as Te Wiki Aotearoa Māori. And then it started to be offered in some secondary schools, Māori, um, af- not long after that as well. Yeah, well, it was taught in my um, high school. I didn't do it. I was um, pushed into Latin and French. Um, But what was really significant at that time was that people often only went up to um, fifth form, which is like about age 14, 15, and they would do school certificate. Yeah. They used to have, um, have scaling of marks back then. So if you were doing Latin, it was they went, oh, you, you've got to be bright to do Latin, so <laughs> most of the people will pass. Yeah, yeah, if it yeah. was something like maths, it would be like half would pass, half would fail. But because Māori often didn't do that well in things like English and maths and those kinds of uh, subjects, they said, well, we can't have them, lots of them passing in te reo Māori. We'll actually have to fail lots of them. So they scaled it That's so that a lot more people failed than passed. So even though Te Reo Māori was taught in high schools, it was there was still had these racist sort of assumptions yeah. about Māori learning that meant that a lot of people didn't succeed, even if even though they could speak the language. Wow. That is absolutely ridiculous. And, well, you know, scaling still goes on to some extent today. Mm. Uh, <laughs> so I remember when I was at primary school, we had Te Ata Aorangi, which was, uh, I can't exactly remember what it was all about now, but I know we did have that uh, in my school here in Otipote out of Musselboro Primary School. So using cuisineer rods? Yes, yes. yes. Yeah. That, that's a technique. Um, there's, there's lots of different ways of teaching te reo Māori. You know, you can learn it out of a book, you can sit next to somebody and talk to them, mm. um, but this was a way of, of trying to generate speech um, using um, 
the, the wooden rods mm-hmm. of different colours um, as a way of, of, of showing structures of, of sentences. Um, it, it was sort of a, like a, a, a the, not, there's not a lot of paper work done. It's yeah. a very oral way of doing it. So it's just one way and a, and a very good way of, of learning te reo Māori. I don't remember any of it except for the rods. <laughs> and, and Mrs. Maxwell, great teacher. Oh, Miss Mackay, actually, not Miss Maxwell. Um, well, I'm rather jealous of you, Jamie, honestly. Um, having gone to primary and high school in Australia, I can say I, I never once learned how to say hello, even in an Aboriginal language. No, you wouldn't. And they were a lot of Aboriginal languages. Um, you know, this was kind of uh, the late 90s onwards. Um, so, yeah, I mean, things have definitely changed now and picked up. Um, but, yeah, there's plenty of work to do on both sides of the Tasman, I suppose. Um, we just talked about Kohangareo. Um there was in so so that's pretty much like kind of kindergarten early primary school age children isn't it right and uh, but there was also the end of the 1970s and early 80s there started to be the opening up of bilingual schools yes and bilingual units within schools yeah yeah yes. yeah yeah and so were they offered in predominantly maori areas or was this something that the education ministry wanted to open up everywhere um, well, case of say Ruatoki, that was a bilingual school. Yeah, um, that was the first one, right? Yeah, um, but then you had a bilingual unit. I, I'm not sure if it still exists up in Brockville. So um, they were sort of around where there was seen to be a demand, mm-hmm. where you had a lot of Māori students and parents who wanted their children to go into these into these units. Yeah, there's one at Northeast Valley Primary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I believe. I'm not quite sure about any others. So then, yeah, then we get um, Kohangareo uh, and the Kura Kopapa as well. Then it's a four version school, isn't it? Yeah, well, what happened was that you had children up to the age of five uh, learning to speak Māori and being very fluent. Um, and then they would go off to the mainstream school and they would lose yeah. a lot of it. So the, uh, the Kura Kopapa were really established so that. Um, there would be a con- continuity so that the language could really bed in um, for the for that particular child. Do you see parents learning off the back of their children's learning? Well, there's, the, parents have got to be committed, and if they're not um, speakers themselves, then they they should be learning. Well, they're sort of expected to to be learning so that they can uh, maintain that language also in the home. Mm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, 1984 official language status claim to the Waitangi Tribunal. Um, what was happening there? Well, it was really that um, you know you had Māori Language Week, but mm-hmm. not a lot had changed uh, in most people in their day-to-day life. So um, it was really in order to um, try and get government to acknowledge that um, Te Reo Māori is a taonga. Uh, and should be protected and, and nurtured um, under the Treaty of Waitangi. Where are we sitting now? We're in the tw- we're in the twenty first century. How is uh, Maori language perceived by the education uh, department, by the universities? Uh, are we seeing a real push uh, from not just from from Māoridom, but from uh, you know the society as a whole to bring Te Reo back into the community, and you know for not just Maori but Pakeha to start speaking it. Well, as a manukiri or visitor who's been in New Zealand for 10 years um, and who studied here, I could probably um, speak from my own experience uh, as um, an Australian as well. I mean, it's definitely perceptible, the efforts um, to kind of encourage people to use the language. And um, 
at this institution. It's um, noticeable as well, certainly. Um, when I did my PhD, uh, the history department sponsored me to do a Māori paper, so I was uh, able to kind of get my facts and my, uh, my reo right, which um, was terrific. So, um, yeah, there's definitely encouragement. I'm uh, not sure what you'd like to add to that, Lockie, if anything. Well, I'd just like to talk a little bit about some research that um, a couple of my colleagues, uh, one of whom has since left, mm-hmm. but um, Poya and Tangiwai Rewi, um, together with um, Rawinia Higgins from Victoria, and this was looking at what they call right-shifting attitudes to te reo Māori. Yeah. So essentially, you know, you might have people that have zero knowledge or zero engagement with the language. So if we can make those people a little bit more empathetic, yeah. and then those people that are em- empathetic, we can make them a little bit, or, you know, use the language a little bit. People that know a little bit, make, you know, so it's really mm. just to encourage it. And this is used by a number of um, government departments, yeah. mm. uh, this programme and um, has been quite effective. However, you know, l- people learning a little bit of te reo Māori will not actually save the language. Yeah, 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 what yeah. you need is people learning it uh, in depth, um, sort of, and actually speaking it, uh, you know, in complex ways in a lot of different domains of life. Um, that's what's that's what's really needed in order for the language to survive. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, um, yeah. You're right. It's the shifting of the attitudes because there are. I mean, when they talk about having it compulsory in schools, it really brings people out of the woodwork. Oh, it? absolutely. <laughs> yes. uh, and and, and the ch- you, children love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They do. But there are extremely strong opinions out there. Like, mm. why do we we don't need it in our day to day lives? But that's not you know it's it's, it's not going to help us with business or trade or anything like that. But that's not what it's about. Like you said, it's about saving a tonga, saving a, um, a beautiful part of an amazing culture, right? Oh, for sure. There's lots of things that we don't actually need in our yeah. lives. <laughs> I don't need algebra, but I have to learn it at school. Yeah. Or well, we don't need the you know the concert radio. But you know there were a lot of people that got upset when. <laughs> when there were talk was talk about getting rid of that. Yeah. Um, so if we think of something like Te Reo Māori, it doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. Mm. We can't go and get, you know, like you can always go and get an orchestra from somewhere else and yeah. bring them to New Zealand. You can't do that with Māori language and Māori culture. Yeah. It's indigenous. It's like the, the trees and the birds. Yeah. You know, if it dies, it's gone. Yeah, and it's not going to get rid of English. You know, things aren't going to automatically change overnight. There's this massive fear, but I think Wales is a good example. Mm. You know, what the Welsh have done with with their language. You know, it's beautiful, and they speak it on the daily with um, other Welsh people. Oh, I'm glad you were going to say Welsh because I was thinking Wales. Yeah. <laughs> 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 swimming, at, swimming in the ocean. Did picture Wales, certainly. <laughs> Thank you for no, elaborating upon that. No, the, the, <laughs> no, the Welsh. But the Welsh. Can I just say that, like, when I started learning Te Reo Māori, um, and I came to university here um, back in the 1990s. Um, Practically everybody was learning the language as a second language. Mm-hmm. They might have learned a bit at school, yeah. they might know a little bit from the whānau, but everyone was sort of at an even playing field and learning the language. What we're finding now is that we're getting a lot of our students who have been through Kūra Papa who are really fluent. They're fluent speakers. 
um, you know, and it's it's as a someone who teaches Te Reo Māori, it's a real challenge um, because you know you've got people, and, and we have to provide a service for those people who are who have been learning it from scratch. Yeah. But to then have people in, in the class as well who are the, just these amazing. Are they good, teaching you? Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> definitely. Uh, yeah, it, it is really quite incredible. So things have changed. Yeah. Um, and I think it was, uh, I heard recently on the radio that, you know, you have huge numbers of, of young children who are really comfortable speaking to Reo Māori now. Yeah. So I think that's positive. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I think, I think among uh, younger people, uh, perhaps a lot of your listeners, Jamie, that... Um, the whakamā is a big problem, or the shame, the anxiety that comes mm-hmm. with the mispronouncing words, um, yes. trailing off, getting something wrong. Um, so whether you um, did learn Māori in secondary school or earlier, whether you started it at university or just tempted to experiment with some words, um, I'd advise to seek out solidarity, sign your whole flat up for classes, encourage them to do that, or just find other Māori speakers who are at the same level as you yeah. and um, get amongst there are some brilliant resources out there. Oh, yes. Um, there are free classes around Otiputi and online as well. Yes. Yeah, yeah. There, there's, there's a lot out there. So uh, all it takes is a little bit of time and effort. And, and, uh, and of course, we teach Te Reo Māori at Tatumu and you that's can right. build that into your degree. That's exactly right. Exactly right. That, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not forget that. Well, we'll leave it there. Thank you both for coming in. Thank you, Jamie. Yeah, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, Have a wonderful day, uh, and we'll talk again soon. Cheers. All right, that was History Time here on Radio 191 FM, talking about the history of Te Reo Māori um, with Dr. Valetta Gilbert and Dr. Lockie Patterson. Big thanks to both of them for coming in and doing that. Uh, for us this morning, it is... That was a Radio 191 FM podcast. Find more at r1.co.nz.